Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. A big show today, so let's get right at it. Later, Halifax-based singer-songwriter Rich O'Coyne joins us to talk about his new album, United States, and Aladdin star Mina Moussad stops by to chat up his new book, it's called Evolving Vegan. But first, chart-topping songs like Why Does It Always Rain On Me and Coming Around, and albums like The Man Who, which spent nine weeks at number one on the UK albums chart, made Scottish rock legends Travis one of the most interesting bands of the last few decades. They're back with an emotionally charged and deeply heartfelt ninth studio album simply called Ten Songs. It's a record about life's challenges and how love can help weather those trials and tribulations. Joining me today is Travis lead vocalist and rhythm guitarist Fran Healy on Skype. He's been called one of UK's finest songwriting exports. I started by asking him where he was. Right now I'm in Glasgow. I'm in Scotland because we had to come we had to come to um to Britain I had to come to Britain to to do to, like television things and all the rest of it but we have to quarantine for two weeks so I have to come two weeks before we're due to do the thing and then I have to go back to LA via another country for two weeks to be in another country for two weeks that's not on the naughty list Right. Um, it's a very interesting time we're living in. I, I think that um, we're, we're, it's very early days in a pandemic. You know, we're only six months into it, and this this feels like it could go on for a long time. I think that um, there's this feeling. It's weird because maybe for the last ten years. On and off, I've been talking when I talk to people or my friends, or when you know, I have discussions about the world and love. And my feeling of my, of the past 10 years has been I, I just felt like humanity was. F-ed. I just felt like beca- because of the way um, it's maybe something to do with our brains now talking to each other, mm-hmm. and we're not. We're not really, um, no, we're not really doing this old-fashioned way of communicating. Where I would, I'd be in the same room as you and touch you on the shoulder or look at you in the eye properly. Um, and we, for, and, but this idea of like interconnectedness that the internet brings uh, is almost like a, it's a, an illusion, because never before had I ever felt. The world more distant from one another at this at the point of we're supposed to be so close to one another being brought together with all this technology and i was just thinking god it, and every time we had this conversation i always just said it, my, my my take on it was i the only thing that will will change any any of this is if something massive happens and right. like a meteorite or something massive global pandemic and look at here we are so we've taken all this amazing stuff for granted restaurants um, Mm and gigs just being in each other's company like being able to hang out and and, and travel go places we can't do any of that anymore it's very very difficult to do it if you're going to do it at all and um it's almost like it's it's this thing that we've taken for granted has now been taken away from us and um, I really feel like when we do get it back because I know I've, I've really 
I feel very positive about it. When we do get it back, it's going to be wonderful because it will have, it's the sort of George Bailey in a wonderful life moment where you get to see the world. I was more talking about going to see shows, going to like doing the things that have been taken away from us and that we don't take for granted. I mean, as far as, as we are together, um, which I was talking about at the start, I don't know. The jury's out. I think. I, I think humanity could be. It could be beyond the point of repair, because I think you know. I've never seen the world so divided. I mean, look at look at the, even the way that, that, that the pandemic's been handled. You have half of the people saying it's a conspiracy, yeah. and then you have the other half who are actually you know being like sensible about it and going, okay, we'll go along with this. Um, and it's it's like it seems like half the people don't have any idea outside of themselves and the other half have mm-hmm. and one half thinks the other half are crazy and the vice versa i don't know I, I, let's let's talk about the album though <laughs> line by line we drew it up had our feeling threw it up broke the wheel and tore it up i can't even say why all my past is sure enough on my door won't stop Good light so I made it up And I can't even say why Here's just one more uh, yep. pandemic-related question yes. uh, but it's about music So we don't have live music right now by and large When you think back to all the concerts that you've seen or maybe all the concerts that you've actually performed in do you have like a magical musical moment that really stands out? There's a few definite moments Um uh, they're obviously they're, we, we we headlined Glastonbury on the Saturday night in 2000. It was amazing because really you 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 sit as a songwriter anyway. You sit in your bedroom and you write songs at the end of your bed, and you don't ever think in a million years you even if you have a big hit. You, mm-hmm. you don't ever get to hear a hundred thousand people singing it back to you at once <laughs> uh, at, at the top of their voices yeah. um and 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 uh, so that was a really interesting moment and and one that I, it's it's unmatchable mm-hmm. um but then there's little small moments as well where that 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 are that stand out just as as much for different reasons like um you go, you you play in front of Glastonbury, and there's like a hundred thousand people singing. But there, then you go and you play in in this tiny venue, and there's nobody there, um, and it's like puts things into perspective. But I mean, my God, what we've had such a charmed career. I'm we're so f- lucky. I mean, God, I'm still doing it. I'm still getting away with it. You're listening to my chat with Travis, lead singer and guitarist Fran Healy. Their new album, 10 Songs, is available now. I love that you talk about the song Butterfly sort of as describing the way that you write or your, your idea of songwriting. Can you explain what that means to me? There's, there's, there's a couple of things going on in Butterflies. My take on songwriting, I've got a few different takes on songwriting, a few different metaphors or analogies that, that, that sound good to me. One is mining, right? diamond or gold mining it's like the beginning of um sometimes i feel like daniel day lewis at the beginning of there will be blood another time i feel like someone sitting in a boat 
without oars in the middle of a giant lake with a fishing rod and no bait, just waiting. And you just have to sit and wait. The other one is catching butterflies um, and doing a... And, and, and when you catch the butterfly, you you look at it and, the, and you... You, you you either you record it in some way you draw it you, but I think maybe there's just one butterfly mm. and there's this butterfly that flies around and everyone who's makes or writes or does you know it, they, they they catch it they look at it and then they set it free and then they try and remember it because this butterfly is this thing maybe it's the it's the magic it's the, it's the muse it's, yeah it's the thing what we're all trying to get it's the, it's the, you can turn it into a book, you can turn it into a painting, you can score a goal, like Messi sees the butterfly, you know, it's the, it's the thing that it's the, un, you can't get it, you can't, it's elusive, um, you can only catch a glimpse of it. To me, that's kind of what songwriting's like, so I'm playing those chords and this weird melody comes out and right, right with the melody comes out this line, chasing butterflies. Um, by the water and the the reason I think that exists is because in my family my mother's brother when he was nine years old drowned um, in the canal and in our family folklore like it, this was a massive nuclear explosion in our family in 1945 right just as the war ended and he's chasing butterflies by the canal when he when he died and if that boy had that child not died, my mum wouldn't have been born and I wouldn't exist. So it was a kind of weird, you know, it's like that knock-on thing. Anyway, that's that's kind of I don't know where any songs come from, to be honest. But they're but, but the butterfly analogy is a close, it's a nice way of thinking about it. Well, when you were 16. A teacher walked in on you and a guy named David Bell in a dormitory, and you were trying to write songs. You thought you were going to get into trouble, but the teacher actually sat you down and taught you some things. Yeah. And what kind of things did he teach you? Because he didn't give you a butterfly metaphor, I'm guessing. It was probably, here's how you write a bridge, here's how you write a chorus, here's how it was. Was that more along the, those lines? He, he, he was like, you need to write about what you know. And he sat me down, he's, and it's a funny story. He said, um, I wrote a song when I lived in this little town um, and he, he taught me the song and he wrote down all the lyrics. I had this book with me called Different Seasons, Stephen King book. It's actually the short story book that uh, Stan Byamy's written in. I've still got the book. He wrote it on the inside of the book. <laughs> and for f five years, I thought this was his song. And we became really fast friends. We came... But it wasn't his song. Eventually, a friend of mine said, Franny, that's not Jerry's song. That's a Joni Mitchell song. <laughs> and I'd gone for years thinking. And it, the thing was, I didn't, whenever we were at a party, I'd sing this song because Jerry was there. And I'd go, this is Jerry's song. And everyone was in on the joke apart from me. But it's a good song. It's called The Urge for Going. It's... um. It's a really nice song. That was my interview with Fran Healy of Travis. Find their new album, 10 Songs, wherever you legally download or buy music. Next up, Mina Mossad. He recently starred in Disney's live-action film Aladdin, and now he's written a book. 
Evolving Vegan that chronicles his experiences and discoveries from his recent road trip across North America. The book features 80 international recipes, including dishes like tofu pad thai, fresh chickpea salad, and raw sweet potato lasagna, as well as tips for lifelong vegans and people transitioning to a plant-based lifestyle. Here's Mina Musad. Let's set the table. Five years ago, you made your mother cry at the dinner table when you told her you were thinking of becoming a vegan. Did you expect that reaction from her? Uh, you know, I've surprised my parents a lot. Uh, I told them I was going to be an actor, told them I was going to move away from home, uh, all things they weren't used to. Uh, so I'm not really sure what I expected, but I, uh, I didn't expect for her to not make me anything for dinner. Uh, I think she thought I was going to crack under the pressure and end up eating her food anyway, but uh, but I held my ground. Now, you grew up eating pretty much everything you've said, uh, and you say that meat tastes good. How do you feel about that now that you are five years removed? Yeah, I mean, meat tastes good. Uh, that's why we eat it. Uh, mm. That's why it's it's hard to give up because it tastes good. Uh, that's That's the whole point of... Uh, evolving vegan and going more plant-based you know if it was if it was easy and meat didn't taste good then everybody would be vegan already and you say that your journey on this uh, particular subject on veganism began out of resentment and denial was that the motivation for writing the book no no when I said that I think what I meant was um you know, I had had people tell me before in my life to go vegan and um, like any meat eater, I was angry at them and always argued with them about how ridiculous that idea was. Um, but I, I end up coming to it on my own, you know, years later, months later. Um, I think veganism and, and plant-based living is something that you have to be convinced of yourself. You have mm -hmm. to come to it on your own. Nobody convin can convince you to do it. Otherwise, you're never going to stick uh, stick to it. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, debates back and forth about people who go vegan right away. They tend to revert back to the way they used to eat uh, more quickly than people who do it slowly and, and come to it slowly, which is the whole idea and premise behind evolving vegan. Well, the transition is difficult for people. So how exactly did you do it? Was it a step-by-step -step process where you start by saying, all right, I'm not going to eat eggs anymore. And then the next week you let something else go and, and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, it might not be a week. You know, it might take you a month. Mm -hmm. But I did give up red meat first. Uh, red meat obviously has the biggest environmental impact on our planet um, than any of the other animal products. So I gave up red meat first. Um, and I think then I gave up eggs and chicken uh, might have not been in that order. But uh, eggs was definitely one of the first to go just because of the amount of hormones uh, that are naturally in an egg. You know, you need hormones to to make a baby chicken into a big chicken. So there's naturally a lot of hormones in eggs. Um, so, yeah, I did it slowly. And the more that I cut things out, the better I started to feel, the more energy I had. Um, I was making more progress at the gym than I ever had before. And so it, it just worked for me and, and my lifestyle. And um, it, it's been easy ever since. But, but the idea of evolving vegan is that if you give up all these things, uh, but you really want cheese once in a while, that's fine too. 
There's no rules to dieting. You're in charge of what you eat. You're in charge of your, uh, what you put into your body. And nobody should be able to judge the way that you eat. You're listening to my interview with actor Mina Musad, author of Evolving Vegan. Did you find that you had uh, a more mental clarity? I think I've heard you talk about that, not just in a physical sense, but that uh, you became sharper mentally when you gave up eating meat. Yeah, I've always worked long hours, uh, whether it was at theater school where, you know, we got up at 6 a.m. every morning and finished at 7, 8 p.m. Or when I graduated, I was working at a restaurant uh, and I'd work double shifts very often. So I'd work the lunch and dinner shift. So I'd, I'd be on my feet for 12, 13, 14 hours. And then on Aladdin again, you know, I woke up at 5 a.m. every morning and we wrapped at 6 p.m. I probably didn't get to bed till 9 p.m. So um, I've always worked long hours and I found that when I went vegan, it just suited me better. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I had, you know, when I used to eat meat and again, I ate a lot of meat in my house growing up. Um, I used to just get the sweats. I used to have to sit down, be lethargic after I ate that almost never happens on a plant-based diet because even if you overeat your body is much better at processing plants and breaking them down than meat so you end up feeling like you're back ready to go uh much quicker than if you you know binge on a on an animal uh meat meal now your book is interesting because it is about zero judgment and there's an old joke that says, uh, how can you tell if someone is vegan? Well, don't worry, they'll tell you. And this book says, don't worry about that. There's no judgment here. Uh, this is about just making a change in your life that will make you feel better. Did you feel judgment from other vegans when you started because you weren't completely vegan at the beginning as you evolved into becoming a vegan? To be honest, I mean, I feel like um, I feel like that is a mainstream media narrative uh, that we've put out there over decades and decades that vegans judge people and it's you know one way or the highway. The truth is, when I went vegan, I didn't have any vegan friends, so I didn't really have anyone to judge me. And the the likelihood that if you go vegan at home, that you'll have other vegans judging, like what vegans? What vegans are gonna sit there judging you? You probably don't know any. So I think that's, um, it, it, it's a, it's more of a narrative in the mainstream media that's been put out there that I'm trying to debunk um, and trying to tell people, you know, there is no judgment. There, You can do whatever you want. As long as you eat more plants, you're benefiting your health most likely and you're benefiting the planet. Um, so you should just try to evolve vegan, whether that takes a couple of months, a couple of years, a couple of decades, just try to eat more plants. That was my interview with Mina Masad. Pick up Evolving Vegan wherever you buy fine books. Stay with us. Next, we'll meet Halifax-based Rich O'Coin. He's a singer-songwriter with a new album called United States, available wherever you legally download or buy music. He's built a reputation for putting on some of the best live shows in Canada. And if you don't believe me, just look up the reviews. So that's where we began by talking about the lack of live music in our lives right now. <laughs> There's been, I've seen so many shows over the years. I guess uh, it, it's, uh, there, there was a little bit of a, a realization as I played a song on March, I played a show on March 13th. Uh, that it was going to be, I, I knew while I was doing it, I was like, this is going to be the last time I do this for a while. 
and uh it the show technically did shut down because uh, uh the uh the the promoter still had me fly up to uh Rayun Naranda in uh, northern Quebec and I I was I was uh wasn't very um optimistic about the show going forth as planned but the, uh in the last minute right before the show was about to start the the government um uh canceled all shows so I still played for the organizers uh and we just kind of celebrated even though the uh the whole event got shut down and and then uh and then afterwards uh I, I as I packed up I I I think it's going to be like another maybe another year before I, I I do anything that resembles what my shows used to be so you did the show was there like five people in the audience or something is that there there was uh there's probably like 25 people yeah. and uh there was supposed to be 800 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and so everyone was super spaced out and uh it still was was odd uh so it wasn't like uh you know when i think about uh you know me, me playing oceaga in montreal and having thousands of people all yelling my songs together like that's a much more positive <laughs> memory than, but uh but there was a sense of uh at least i'm gonna enjoy this last moment before uh before it all ends well, you've done some some unusual shows. You played at a concrete factory, uh, a bank, yeah. a psychiatric ward. You've played yeah. all over the place. Um, I, I know that you plan the shows very carefully, from the lighting to what happens, and probably no two shows are are very oh, much alike. No, no shows at all are the same. Uh, everyone's tailored to the place that I'm in. And I mean, the question, I guess, then is, is why that must be so much extra work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think with everything, whether it's my albums or my show, I just think about uh, what do I have personally to offer uh, and something that I can do to assure that I'm putting something into the universe that uh, only I can can do the way that that I'm doing it and so uh I, I put the extra effort in because uh, I put myself in the patrons kind of point of view and and think of if I was going to come to my own show would would I enjoy it <laughs> yeah, yeah well I love this line from uh your press pack and I found this it says since releasing his first EP in 2007 Rich has made it his life's work to transform our fear into fun anxiety into ecstasy panic into pleasure and i'm wondering this would be the last pandemic question uh how important is music uh as an antidote to how we're all feeling these days i think to answer that it, it would be mainly from my experience of of the wonderful folks who've reached out to me over the pandemic and uh who have just given me these really thoughtful uh, and and often very moving and deep um, messages of of uh, and, sh and like open of like sharing like you know losing someone or um, or all these kind of um, heavy life moments that um, were were not only countered by my music in a um, a sort of like uh, denial or negation of them, but but like taking them in and and uh i've always tried to have my music have this kind of existential catharsis to it now you grew up in halifax and you've described yourself 
as a kid as a jack of all trades. So you're interested in lots of clubs, you joined uh, lots of different things, you tried all kinds of stuff. How did music play a role in your teenage years? And, and what kind of genres were you experimenting with? When I was a kid, we had a a very uh, enriched extracurricular art programming in, in Nova Scotia. So I was able to be simultaneously in uh, school band, school jazz band, uh, school orchestra, uh, all city percussion ensembles doing like very like kind of niche stuff. Uh, and, um, and, and so kind of that all in the school system. And then outside of that, doing voice lessons, classical piano, and uh, playing in uh, rock bands with uh, friends like down in uh, some uh, really smelly basements. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Rich O'Coin. Check out his album, United States, wherever you legally buy or download music. Well, one of the things that I loved about growing up down there was that if you went to see a band, and I don't know if it's exactly this way now, but if you went to see a band uh, and went to see a heavy metal band, the opening act might be a traditional Irish folk band or something, and the same crowd would go, the same crowd would stay, and the both bands would get pretty much the same response. Yeah. And I love the eclecticism of that. Uh, yeah, I, I often say that that's one of my favorite parts of living here. And uh, you'll be happy to know that still reigns true today. Oh, good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there, it, not only is it the that this, you know, acoustic or um, East Coast kind of opener in this scenario opening for the metal band, but, you know, they could come out and present themselves one way. Uh, and then all of a sudden they, they take off their shirt <laughs> wearing like a ripped off, uh, cut off. A t-shirt and then and then suddenly they're picking up a bass and, and then shredding in the metal band as well that was your cover of smoke on the water that you recorded in high school was that your first time in a studio and if so did it kind of ignite that passion in you to want to spend a lot of time in the studio yeah it uh it was uh, it was really fun it, it was such a real studio like it was the I think the only like kind of big old fashioned kind of studio um, uh, that we had in Halifax. And at the time it was like the, um, I, I guess they made some like Anne Murray records there and, and stuff, but it was above uh, music stop on, uh, on up in the North end there. Right. And I got to go with my two other bandmates when we were in grade eight and record recorded and and like real professional like big uh console room and everything so it felt real yeah it was it was nice to have that experience uh first before you know the the real first recording i did which was uh in a in an attic with a small little sound card <laughs> yeah yeah well it's so different now i mean you can make a record at home now but that yeah. that first experience i always think is so formative you know, mm -hmm. if you walk into that studio, you're going to be impressed by that. And it's going yeah. to be, it's going to feel real. And that's going to make an impression on you. Oh, yeah. I was, I was definitely, like, uh, even thinking about the memory and talking about it with you, my, like, heart's going a little with my nervousness <laughs> that day. <laughs> now, you almost went uh, to film school. And I can see that reflected in your visual art. Uh, the videos that you've released all the way through your career up to and including the one we're going to talk about today in a little bit um, are 
so interesting and they they to me reflect the eclecticism of the music but also just someone who is so in love with the with the visual art of it all and it seems like they're i don't know are they are they equally as important to you yeah that's that's a good question i think i think so i made my first I, I wanted to make a short film with, uh, when I back when I made my first EP to sync up to How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and I think because I in do, in doing in realizing how um, difficult making a short film was going to be, <laughs> I opted to uh, at least score uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas so that I could feel like I'd made a a film by the end of the project. This is my interview with singer-songwriter Rich O'Coin. Check out his new album, United States, wherever you legally download or buy music. In this segment, we start by talking about how he syncs up his records with classic shows and movies like The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. It's fun stuff. So I did it with every record up to this one, uh, United States, and it was the first one that I decided uh, I was gonna let that that idea of the past go uh, I, I'd like to return to it one day but I also am trying to make a record a year for the next four years and uh, sinking them to uh, old movies uh, takes a lot of effort <laughs> now the video for it uh, features you playing roles from Forrest Gump uh, your Venkman from Ghostbusters De Niro and Taxi Driver Travis Bickle, your uh, Elliot from E.T. Um, yeah. How did those movies influence you as a kid? Well, the idea with that was originally we were going to choose all the videos that I, I wrote my first record to sync up to, which was films from the public domain, because that earlier record I mentioned, Sinking uh, Up to the Grinch, uh, received uh, got me to receive a uh, cease and desist from Dr. Seuss Enterprises LP. Really? So. Yeah, so the next album, I tried to find one film in the public domain, but there wasn't one that kind of spoke to me the way that The Grinch did. And uh, so I cut a movie together out of about 35 um, films from the public domain. And that was the kind of starting point for it. Uh, So we chose It's a Wonderful Life and Night of the Living Dead. But then the rest of them, uh, we felt like, picking something like E.T. or, um, you know, Top Gun would be much more exciting than uh, watching uh, a recreation of Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> uh, so, so we, uh, yeah, so, so then we just picked movies that we enjoyed growing up and half of them were ones that really spoke to me growing up and half were uh, the director, Noah Pink, that I made the video with. Now, your fourth studio album, United States, is out now. Uh, there are themes of, of protest. There are themes of concern that weave all the way through, uh, particularly on songs like How It Breaks. Um, tell me a little bit about the inspiration for writing this record. I think a lot of it was largely jumping off a real connection to David Bowie's Young Americans uh, right at the start of the, the bike ride. So I knew I was going to make a record while cycling instead of in this basement studio that I'm in now. And, and we should point out that when you say cycling, we haven't touched on this, but <laughs> you uh, frequently tour on a bicycle. You have driven across Canada or driven, ridden across Canada on a bicycle. And then this 
trip that we're talking about here through the U.S. And you hit a lot of states, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Texas, uh, Arkansas, goes on and on. And yeah. you did that on, on, on a bicycle. I did, yeah. So I knew, I knew it would be uh, make for an interesting record to change the scenery when I'm, where I'm writing it. And, uh, and so I, I thought I would do it while I was doing this tour. Um, like it was also a music tour playing in, in all those uh, states and cities. And, uh, but then really attaching to young Americans when the, when I started being immersed in American news and, and, um, uh, kind of being like on the ground kind of made me realize that the, the record should be about, uh, the United States. And so my point there too, uh, of, of, uh, of mixing two things is, um, having some of it be politically um, looking at the lens of the problems of the world through the United States uh, on one side and then the other is more kind of universal existential uh, states of consciousness that we all share. And we should also mention that when you were cycling across the, the US, uh, you did it to raise uh, money for the Mental Health uh, of America and the Canadian Mental Health Association. Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, and so and you've supported mental health associations often on your rides. I've kind of gone down the list of a, a bunch of different charities over the years. Around the time of uh, the bike, uh, was um, I felt like mental health was uh, something that needed more uh, breaking down of the stigma around it, and uh, and more um, uh, it was it was uh, vastly underfunded and still is and needs needs more uh, attention. You're listening to my interview with Rich O'Coin. Check out his new album, United States, wherever you legally buy or download music. The videos, again, are kind of mind-blowing here. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the video that is all news clips. Now, it's, it's, it's about President Donald Trump, but you don't mention the name. Nobody in the video mentions the name, and you yeah. don't show his face. Yeah. So yeah. was that so, so you wouldn't get sued or was it, a, are you making a larger point? Uh, I think I'm making uh, kind of like the, the Voldemort uh, idea where uh, not saying his name and, and uh, blurring his face uh, kind of uh, doesn't add to his power. Right. And uh, I, I also, that's on one side of it. And then the other is just um, to have the song be more, um, applicable to whichever kind of uh, scenario you want to bring it to it uh uh the the problems that the song addresses and and uh looks at are not just happening in america but here in canada and across the world and so um i didn't want to like um uh pigeonhole it right into like one only only one reading of it i guess now the new video for the song walls is Epic. It is the only way that you can describe this video. A lot and of hard work by a lot of people. In a wall, in a wall, in a wall. These walls it features remakes of videos. Uh, or, or little snippets of remakes of videos from the Beastie Boys, Madonna, Queen, uh, um, uh, Drake, MC Hammer, Beyonce, like everybody's in here. There's 20 or more videos referenced in here. 
How did you choose which videos to recreate? Was it based on the visual style of the original video or was it based on like, I love this song and I just want to pay tribute somehow? Kind of a bit of both because there, there was, I think the former is how we were trying to pick them and then, and then those ended up being a lot of the ones that I really did attach uh, to growing up and, and was excited about in, uh, having in the video. So we tried to just pick the most iconic videos uh, yeah. that looked like they were refilmable, like some uh, some of the later OK Go videos are just too ambitious to try and recreate. Uh, like and, uh, they are, if people haven't seen them, they're like Rube Goldberg machines, yeah. right? And, and the one take, yeah, and they go on oh. for four or five minutes and they are yeah. so elaborate, I, yeah. I can't even imagine. You do it. There, do, there's a nod do, to that. Yeah. yeah, we do do one uh, like OK Go. I knew had to be in the uh, uh, in the video. I think the the fun thing with this video compared to uh, it was it kind of went through each of the kind of scenes of these movies. But this one, because the track's called Walls and it's all about breaking down these walls that divide us you you literally see the um the different artists uh breaking the walls down between their videos and entering into each other's videos like in the classic uh Aerosmith and Run yeah, DMC yeah. yeah so that video is in there but then we have like you know uh Beyonce going into the okay go video and um suddenly the Beastie Boys are driving in the car with Alanis Morissette and uh, <laughs> Lots of fun combinations. Was this, I mean, it's being released now. We've been in lockdown for six months or so. Was this shot recently or when, how did you do this? Uh, we shot this right before everything locked down in yeah. uh, February. We touched on this just a little bit earlier, but how has living and working in Halifax influenced the music that you make? We talked about how people will, in the same night, have two different gigs, and one's playing in a folk band, one's playing in a heavy metal band. That I love. I think to make a living, you have to be able to do it all. That's it. But, but what is it for you? What does Halifax give you? I think it might be the space and, and um, kind of uh, timelessness of, of living out here, because I've grown up here. Uh, I, I've spent cities, uh, I've spent time, sorry, in, uh, in different cities uh, like Toronto and New York and LA. And um, uh, I think coming out of being back home here and working from here allows um, there to be like more time to process the songs and, and kind of create them. And um, there is that collaborative nature here uh, especially when getting uh, artists, uh, because we're all aware of each other in these different communities, uh, to kind of collaborate with one another in a way that uh, in in larger cities, when you can be a lot more um, specific, you kind of tend to click with those other uh, specific musicians. Jazz players only hang with jazz players. and. Exactly, yeah. So, so I think uh, I, you, you know, this record I really tried to stream, streamline, and so there's only uh, I think uh, 14 of us on the record, but uh, my previous record had 70 people on from all kinds of different types of bands, and then 500 people on the record before yeah. that, right? <laughs> so. Which is, I mean, that's including choirs and things, all right? So yeah, probably th about 350 individual sessions. 
Well, Rich, congratulations uh, on the new record. Sweet. Well, thanks so kindly. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We'll talk again soon and say hi to Halifax for me. (laughs) Thanks a lot. That was my interview with singer-songwriter Rich O'Coin. Check out his newest album, United States, wherever you legally download or buy music. My thanks to all my guests, Fran Healy from Travis. Check out 10 Songs, wherever you buy music. Also, Mina Musad. Have a look at his book, Evolving Vegan. My biggest thanks, though, goes to you, as always. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.